The last several weeks been in the book of James. If you haven't been here, let me catch you up. Book of James is written by, go figure, a guy named James, right? And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, the James that actually wrote the book of James uh, is actually the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus. So if you're not somebody who's not real familiar with the Bible, you might think, well, go figure, he's going to write a book about his brother. He is the brother of Jesus. But what you may not know about James that we have said every week is this, is that James did not start out as a fan of his bigger brother. He was the original skeptic. He thought his brother was crazy. His brother's going around saying, I'm the Messiah, son of God. He's like, you're my brother. You're crazy. And apparently, if somebody kills you and you come back to life, it gives credibility to what you say. Because when James saw his brother killed on a cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, and then again alive, all of a sudden he went from being a skeptic to not a fan, not even a follower. He became a leader. He became a leader that wanted to point other people to his brother Jesus, said, hey, he's the real deal. He is really who he says he is. And so he's a leader in the church, namely in the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing this to followers of Jesus. Now, here's the deal. This original skeptic who now is a follower slash leader in the church is writing about a faith that works. That's what we've been talking about, right? How in the world does a faith that works show up Monday through Saturday? Here's what James is saying. He said, I want to tell you what it looks like when you say you believe in Jesus and believe in the story of Jesus. I want you to think about what does that look like in real time? What does it look like in your life really? And so James isn't talking about a religion that just goes and makes a point. We're tired of that, right? Many people in our culture are tired of that. We don't need another religion that's making a point. He's talking about a relationship that makes a difference. He's talking about a spirituality that impacts our life every day, not just Sunday. And so here's what he's been talking about. He said, hey, this faith that really works shows up when times are tough. This faith that really works shows up when you're tempted. This faith that shows up, it shows up in the way you walk in your life and in the way you talk, which led us to last week. And here's what last week, this is where we're going to pick it up today. Last week, James said this. He says that a faith that really works shows up in a wisdom that is really real. And so we said it this way. Wisdom shows up in a beautiful life that leaves a lasting impact on others. Here's what we said. This is all by way of review. If you weren't here last week, if you are somebody who wants to tell me you're really, really wise, don't tell me everything you know. Don't show me your degrees. Don't point to your accomplishments. Don't tell me what you scored on your ACT. I might be jealous, right? Don't tell me those things. What James is saying is this. Ready? Ready? This is James is saying that if you are really, really wise, it's going to show up in your relationships. In fact, if you want to know if you have a faith that really works, he's saying, don't tell me how much you go to church, how many verses you have memorized. Don't tell me those things. Don't give me your spiritual resume. If you want to know if you have a faith that really works, he's saying, look at your relationships. And basically, when you look at your relationships, you can see whether or not you got a fake wisdom or a real wisdom, which led him to say this at the end of chapter 3. That if I'm really wise, I'm going to be a peacemaker who sows in peace and reaps a harvest of righteousness. Sounds like he's gardening, right? Here's what he's saying. That a really wise person sows peace into their relationships. I'm going to say it again. 
that a really wise person knows what it means to have peace with God. And so in their relationships, they know what it means to sow peace. And when they sow peace, here's what they do. They grow righteousness. Basically, he's saying a really wise person is somebody who who behind them is this beautiful garden of relationships. A really wise person isn't somebody who in their life has a garden full of weeds, a garden full of the weeds of drama and division and disruption and snarkiness and arrogance. That's what he's saying. He's saying that wisdom shows up in relationships that are peace-filled and that are right. And here's what he means, right with God and right with others. Here's the point. Okay, if you want to know, okay, this will get us to where we need to go today. If you want to know if you have a faith that really works, there's no better gauge than your relationships. If you want to know if you have a wisdom that's really real, look at your relationships. Look at the garden of your relationships. If disruption and drama keep following you around, then James is like, hey, heads up, heads up. You might be embracing a fake wisdom. Maybe you are embracing a fake that's not really working in your life. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Listen, this will guess where we're going. Because, ready? There is nothing, you ready, more important in your life than your relationships. There is nothing more important in your life than your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Somebody asked me this one time, said, hey, Dan, what are the only two things that are going to last forever? I was just a young buck. I didn't know the answer. But when you you read God's word, here's the answer, okay, in case anybody ever asks you this. The only two things that God's word says is going to last forever, besides him, obviously, is the word of God and people. And this person said, man, if those are the two things that are going to last forever, maybe that tells you where you ought to invest your time. It reminds me of something Jesus said. Jesus was cornered one day by a really, really smart guy. And this really, really smart guy came to him and said, hey, Jesus, what's the most important rule in the whole Bible? So this really smart guy wants to corner Jesus and say, hey, what's the most important rule? And that's kind of a good question, right? And look at what Jesus said. Jesus looked at this really, really smart guy, and he said, hey, here it is. I'll I'll give you a summary of the entire Bible. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first, and this is the greatest commandment. And then the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus basically says, let me boil it all down. Let me boil down the Bible for you. This guy wanted to know, tell me the most important rule that I can keep. And Jesus said, it's not about the most important rule. It's about two important relationships. Love God with everything you have and love others as yourself. You can't do one without the other. You can't say, I love God and hate my neighbor. That's what he's saying. He's saying that when I love God, it exports into love for others. It's fascinating because when you think about it, right, the only thing... Think about this. This is a good question. Different sermon. What's the only thing that's going to matter 100 years from now? In your life. In my life. We invest our time into a lot of things, right? We have a lot of things we invest our time in. And yet I think what he's saying is the most important thing is our relationships. And so what he's saying is real wisdom shows up in relationships that are right, that are peace-filled, that are loving. Everybody look here a second. The problem is this. Ready? Ready? Not all of our relationships are peace-filled, right, and loving. Can I get an amen in the room? 
Yeah. Not all of our relationships are peaceful. Not all of our relationships are right. Not all of our relationships can be described as loving. In fact, some of us right now in the room, what describes our relationships is more like a battlefield than a garden of peace, right? For some of us, it's more like a war zone. It's more like a war zone in our life than a love fest. For some of us, it's not just, ready? We just gotta get real for about 20 minutes this morning. Just about 20 minutes, we've got to be real. For some of us, it's not even just our relationships with others. But if we're really real, when we think about our relationship with God, no one else knows this, we're in church, but when we think about our relationship with God, something's off there. There's a complacency. Our relationship with God feels contrived. It feels indifferent, inconsequential. And so when we think about Jesus saying, here's the two most important things, and when we look at the two most important things, some of us look at the relationships in our lives, our relationship with God, and we go, "Uh uh-oh, which leads James to James chapter 4. Because he realizes it's almost like he's peeking in on our life, and he asks this question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Interesting, right? He said, why are things so turbulent in your relationships? That's what he's saying. The word he uses is a word that would have talked about hostility and wartime. And for some of us, ready? Look here, saying that describes our marriage. For some of us, that describes our family. For some of us, that describes the, the relationship we have with our neighbor. For some of us, that describes the relationship we have with our coworkers. For some of us, that 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 describes our friendships. And James, go figure, he's talking to church people. He's, he's talking like that happens in church. Some of the best fights have happened in church all through history. And so he asks a question. He says, hey, I'm wondering what causes fights and quarrels among you? And some of us, we have the answer, right? We think, I'll tell you what, it's my crazy wife. She won't do what I want her to do, right? Amen. Don't say it too loud, guys. It's my loony sister, if she would just get on board. It's my, my neighbor, he's so particular. It's my boss, it's my, we have the answer, right? And the answer is normally them, you, her. And look what James says. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It's almost like James says, hey, listen, if there's conflict, the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't your crazy wife, isn't your loony sister, isn't your uh, indifferent boss. That's not the problem. He's saying the problem isn't out there. It's not over here. Guess where? Look here. The problem is in here. What's James saying? I want you to write this in your notes, and we're going to flesh it out. He said, getting my own way is what gets in the way of what I really need. And what I really need is relationships that thrive, a relationship with God that thrives and a relationship with people that is thriving. And so getting my own way is the very thing that gets in the way of what I really need. It's my pride that gets in the way of what I really need. It's my own desires that get in the way of what I really need. It's me demanding my own way that gets in the way of what I really need in my life. Which leads James to say what we see next in James chapter 4. Look what he says. You desire, circle that in your Bibles if you write in your Bibles. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, circle that word in your Bibles, but you cannot get what you want. So you know what you do? You quarrel and fight. This is so key. 
James is simply saying, here's the deal. Y'all are having turbulent relationships. Here's the issue. The issue is you. And then he says, let's look in you and see what we can find, right? And he says, here's what we find in you, me, in me. He says, you got desires. That word you circled desires. Here, let me tell you about that word. I'm going to take in the deep end. We'll pop back out. It is the word in Greek. You can forget this, but hedone, hedone. Sounds like hedonist. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the word hedonism, hedonist. You see, hedonism is just this, that my self-gratification is the chief goal of my life. My self-gratification is the chief goal of my life. Here's what James is saying. You ready? Ready? Here's the good news, right? There's a little hedonist in all of us. There's a little hedonist in all of us. You know what I think of? You know who I think of when I think of a hedonist? You're like, is he going to really name names? I'm not going to name a name. But you know what I think about? I think about a two-year-old. Can I get an amen? And so here's what James is saying. I want you to write it exactly this way. The two-year-old inside of me gets in the way of my relationships with others. That there is a two-year-old inside of me that says, I want what I want when I want it, and what I want is what matters most. Let me see in the room. I want to see who I'm talking to. Raise your hand in the room if you've got a two-year-old in the house right now. Raise them nice and high. Yeah, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you've ever had a two-year-old in the house. Yeah, you know. Put your hands down. Raise your hand if you've ever been a two-year-old. Let me see. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're married to... No, don't do that one. All right, we'll get in trouble. All right? Here's the deal. If you've had a two-year-old in the house, if you've ever been around a two-year-old, you know something that this is what a two-year-old does, right? I, I don't know what happens. Like that beautiful baby, right? Like that beautiful baby you bring home in a bundle and all of a sudden you put, put two candles in the cake and all of a sudden this demon child comes out, right? And I want what I want when I want it, right? My wife and I have been a crazy couple weeks. And so I said, sweetheart, let's get away. Let's, let's, let's take a night and just go, you and I, uh, and, and grab a burger somewhere. So we went about 40, 50 minutes away to this, this awesome burger joint. We we're just going to spend some time together. And it was a really small place. She, she likes to find some local place, and, and burgers were incredible. And so, man, we're just going just gonna to have a good time. So I sit at the table. It's just right in the middle of the restaurant. It was awesome, right? And so we're sitting at a table about this size, and I'm just looking into her eyes, and we're just talking. It's like, sweetheart, how you doing? How you doing? And then we order, and the waitress, she was so nice, and everything's great, and it's just perfect, and it was wonderful. And, and literally, it was, it was a little restaurant, and next thing I heard was the door open. And, and, and the door to the restaurant opened. And when the door opened, because it had a little bell, ding, like that, here's what I heard. Bah! Just like that. <laughs> you recognize that, don't you? And I went, just like that. And all of a sudden, the waitress brought by us and sat at the table right there, this family with two twin two-year-olds. And I sat there, and I'm focusing on my wife doing this, like this, because the mama, she had one. He was a handful, but daddy, he had one that we're going to have none of that, man. I'm going to tell you. He came in screaming, and he cried, and he began throwing himself all over the floor. You ever seen that? And then all of a sudden, he did what two-year-olds do. He began to arch his back. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. And the daddy wanted him to do this. He didn't want to do this. And he wanted to do this. Daddy didn't want him to do this. And the daddy wrangled him, wrestled him, tackled him to the ground. And they ordered their food. And then he took him back out, brought him back. Ah! The whole night. Dad never ate his food. They just boxed it up and away we went. 
Here's the deal. James is saying there's a two-year-old inside of all of us. See what's funny in a restaurant? Kind of. <laughs> Unless you're them. <laughs> what's funny in a restaurant later, maybe, is not so funny when I see it in me. And what James is always saying is this. What brings the two-year-old out in you? Like, what brings the two-year-old out in you? For some of you, you see it in your marriage. You see it in your marriage. You know why? Because a two-year-old shows up every time she has an idea that's different than yours and wants to do something opposing to what you want to do. Some of you are laughing at each other. And you begin to arch your back, and it's just like this two-year-old comes out, right? Because I want to do it, da 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 right? Some of you are like, well, that doesn't happen in our marriage, but you know something? I've seen y'all. And some of you, you know when it happens? When you get behind the wheel of that car. It's something called road. You've heard of it. And all of a sudden, i got to get where I'm going. I don't really care who and get out of my way. And all of a sudden, all James is saying is there's a two-year-old inside of all of us, and it gets in the way of our relationships. Because I want what I want when I want it, and that's what matters most. But, but then he says something else that's interesting, because he said, he said that these, these, this two-year-old tendency covets. You know what it means to covet? I want you to write it this way. I want what you have. And coveting is I don't want you to have it. Like, like, I want what you have, and I, don't, I wish you didn't have it, right? That's what it means to covet. That's what a two-year-old does, right? You, you ever seen, if you've never tried this, you ought to try it. It's kind of cool, right? Get, get two two-year-olds together. <laughs> I remember when my oldest boy was about two, and we're trying to build a relationship with this family. You ever notice everybody thinks their two-year-old's perfect, and everybody else's two-year-old's a demon child, right? That's, your kids too, all right? I'm just saying, but we're getting together with this family, going to build a relationship. We had two wiffle ball bats. One was red, one was blue. Joel had the red one. And we say to this little boy, hey, here's a blue one for you. That little boy didn't want nothing to do with that blue wiffle ball bat. What wiffle ball bat do you think that little two-year-old boy wanted? He wanted the red one. And he began to go over to my son, Joel, and began to pull it and take it, and I want that bat. I want your bat. Here's a blue one. It's the same bat. It's a different color. I want the red one. I want what you want, what you have. I don't want you to have it. I said, Joel, give him the bat. Here's a blue one, Joel. It's cool. Penn State colors, right? Good, good, good bat. Joel had the blue bat. Guess what? That little boy didn't want the red bat. Guess what he wanted? He wanted the blue bat. All of a sudden, we had him one, and he began. This went on and on until eventually that boy came over about the fourth or fifth time and grabbed the bat out of Joel's hand. Joel had had enough. He grabbed the bat back and slugged him in the head with it. It was awesome. <laughs> That mama had the audacity to come to my wife, and I said, your boy's mean, and he hit my son with a bat. I said, Joel, did you hit him with a bat? Yes, sir. I said, don't ever do that again when his mom's watching, all right? I'm just saying. <laughs> Here's the deal. The deal, the, the deal is this. That's how two-year-olds act, right? Like, like all of a sudden, I, I'm not satisfied with what I have. I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. You see, all of a sudden, my salary's fine until I find out what you're making. The car I'm driving, Chevy Impala. When I hop in your car, wow. All of a sudden, my car doesn't seem so cool. My house is plenty big until I come sit in the middle of yours, Right? All of a sudden, covening is, I want what I want, and I want what you have, and, and I don't want you to have it. It shows up. 
It shows, it shows up relationally. Man, it shows up. That guy shows up, the guy you have your eye on, right? And he's with a girl, and it's not you. You must have seen that. I don't know. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. That's what James is talking about. There's no sugar. I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. And you know, you see what he says? He says, y'all, y'all are so bent on this that you kill each other. Like, what? What kind of church was this? I think James just remembered what Jesus was saying, his, his big brother. Remember what he said? He said, you heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. Sounds right. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And then he says, if you call someone an idiot, well, we'd never do that on Route 21, would we? You're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. It's like James is getting real, real quick. He's like, there's a two-year-old inside of you, and that two-year-old inside of you points to something bigger going on. It points to something bigger going on because in the very next, it flows right into my relationship with God, which leads James to say this. He says, this two-year-old, he stops asking God. He stops, I don't even care what God has to say, but when I do ask God, I don't receive because I ask with wrong motives that I may spend what I get on my pleasures. I get this two-year-old mentality with God. Give me, it's kind of like this, I expect God to give me exactly what I want. Give me, give me, give me. And we begin to demand it and we get frustrated with God. And it points to something bigger. Look, look here a second. That normally if I've got drama and conflict and disruption and division and snarkiness and arrogance surrounding my relationships, it points to something wrong in this relationship. Now look here a second. We're probably done laughing for a while. Because James is just going to go for it. And what he has to say next, guys, I like, like I just got to be real with you. Because what he has to say, he doesn't even mince words. Look what he says next. You adulterous people. Raise your hand if you know what adultery is. Just raise your hand if you know what. Okay, I did this first service. Half of them raised their hands, so I explained it. Y'all raised your hands. Let, let the full graphicness of that come out. Let it hang in the room for a minute. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship of the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We've got to make sense of this. Look, look here a second. Can I make sense of this? Some of you are like, man, this is my first time at church, and what are you telling me, right? Here's what he's saying. That the moment I say yes to Jesus, you're saying, what does that mean? Let me show you. The story of Jesus dying on the cross it wasn't just a cool story to have in our Bibles. That's not what it's about. Jesus came and died for you in your place, died for me in my place. So the moment I say, yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me, look here, I get to be forgiven of my sins, I can expect eternity in heaven, and I get a relationship with God. And here's what the Bible says, the moment I say yes to Jesus, I become part of the bride of Christ. You with me? What James is saying is this, is that as part of the bride of Christ, sometimes what happens is I say, I like being married to God, and yet I want to date the world. That's what James is saying. 
James is saying, I, 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 I love being married to God, and he simply is saying that there is a two-timer inside of me that gets in the way of my relationship with God. That, that sometimes in my life, I'm guilty of spiritual adultery. Let it hang for a minute. Like, like in my relationship with God, I become a promise breaker. And he's saying the reason we're in conflict with others is that there's this two-year-old, but really the deeper problem is because our relationship with God, it's like I love the fact that he forgives me of his sins. I love the fact that I have heaven, but here's the deal. There's a two-timer inside of me. I want to be married to God and yet date other gods. I want to love God while loving my other gods. And there's this part of me and, 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 that, that somehow says, don't get me wrong, I love being married to God and being forgiven. I love being married to God and I have the hope of heaven, but I sure would like to fool around until you come and take me to heaven. That's what James is saying. I don't know. A, and he's like, like, I'm not doing this for effect. Like, I read this and I'm like, oh my And for some of us, our spiritual adultery shows up. It shows up in when when, when all of a sudden what we really want is we love being married to God because we like what he gives us. Let's throw that up there, Brandon. I want what God does for me more than I really want God. And so I love the perks. I love the benefits. I love the stuff. But when God doesn't come through exactly how I need him to, exactly how I expect him to, then then I'm frustrated. And James says this, that when that happens, he says, I'm sleeping with the enemy. He says, I'm, I'm nuzzling up with Satan. He says, I'm in bed with God's arch rival. It's like, wow. I mean, it's, it's like James has my attention. Which makes what he says next absolutely startling to me. Because you, you, if you've been with me so far, you've got to stay with me the rest of the way. Because what he says next, the very next verse, by the way, all of you Oprah and Winfrey fans, Oprah Winfrey fans, this verse is one of the reasons that she thought, man, Christianity is not something I can jump into, and I think she, nobody ever explained it to her. So if you ever meet her, listen close so you can explain to her this verse. Because look at what James says. Or do you think Scripture says without reason? that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. That when we say yes to Jesus, here's the point, spirit of God dwells inside. And what that verse is simply saying is we have a God who is jealous for our devotion and he's jealous for our relationship. He, there's, there's the, he's jealous for us. He's not jealous of us. Say it again. He's jealous for us. He's not jealous of us. Not one of you, my wife's name is Jennifer, not one of you would think she was weird or wrong if she was absolutely jealous for my undivided attention and devotion, would you? Please shake your head, you wouldn't think she was weird, would you? I'm married to her. She's not okay with me dating other girls. I'm just going to tell you that in case you didn't know. (laughs) Ask her. She shouldn't be. You wouldn't think she's weird. You wouldn't think, man, how in the world? Oh, man. You ne- nobody would think that. God is jealous for us. Why? Because he loves us like the song said. That song is not just a cool song that Aiden does for us. Every time we sing that, I can't make it the whole way through it. That there's a God that is jealous for me. That he loves me. It's fascinating. I love how 
John Piper put it. And for those of you in the back, I realize the print's small, but I thought it's worthwhile putting up here. God is not jealous like an insecure employer who fears that his employees might get lured away by a better salary elsewhere. That's not what it means. God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful, look at this, and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, then marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife and the position of a queen. His jealousy doesn't rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor, power, and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. That's what it means. Like we have a God who rescued us, forgave us, married us, gave us the position of bride of Christ. And he's jealous for our devotion. Which makes the next part of James, look, everybody look here a second, I, absolutely mind-blowing to me. If, this, if what I'm getting ready to show you does not blow your mind, you're not with me. Look at what it says in 4.6. Say the first word out loud. A little louder. A little louder. Every time you see that in your Bible, put a smiley face because I'm glad he doesn't leave us where we're at. I'm glad there's buts in the Bible. But he, who's he? Anybody know? Who's he? Not just God. You ready? The God you've been cheating on. The God you've been two-timing on. Like, that's where this is mind-blowing to me. Like, the God that sometimes I cheat on, I'm unfaithful to, but He, that God, He, that God, gives us more. What's the word? Say it out loud. Grace. grace. Gives us more grace. The God I'm cheating on is jealous for me. Is He done with me? But, amen? But, He gives more grace. It makes Romans chapter 5 pop for me. If you get to the place in your... Bibles sometime where you're in Romans 5, underline this verse. It, it makes sense of some things that are hard to understand. Let me make sense of you. I'll be real simple. Look at this. It, it's a verse, if you just read it sterilely, you'd be like, huh? That's confusing. Let me help you understand it. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. You're like, that's weird. God gave the law so that we would sin more? No, that's not what he means. Here's what he means. How many have ever been riding down the road? Look here a second. Riding down the road, and you've done what, what I do with my wife. Sometimes I'll be riding down the road, and I'm just, like, I like to go kind of fast, okay? So I'm going, and, and if I haven't seen a speed limit sign, I do what some of you do. Don't judge me. I say to my wife, have you seen a speed limit sign? No, I haven't seen one. So I just assume the speed limit is 70 unless I see a sign. That's what I assume, right? So I'm going down the road, right? And all of a sudden, right, the law, a sign, which is there by law, comes my way. And it says 55, right? Then what does that sign tell me? Like, I think I'm just doing fine, 70 miles an hour, till I, the law interacts with me, and I realize I'm speeding. That's all he's saying. He's saying that the more I know, the more I read, the more truth of God that I absorb, I'm like, oh, wow, I am in deep weeds. Oh, wow, I am guilty. Oh, wow, who knew? <laughs> I am a sinner, and the more I understand that, look what it says, but where sin increased, the more I'm aware of my sin. You gotta get this, it'll explode. It will change your life. 
It will change your life. Where sin increased, the more signs of God, the law of God that passed me, it's like, oh, wow, wow, wow. He says, the more I realize what a sinner I am, grace increased all the more. Anybody glad that verse is in the Bible? Like that, like that is power-packed. He's saying, the more I understand my guilt, the more I understand my guilt, the more likely I am to experience grace. The more I understand what a sinner I am, the more I'm going to be amazed at what a savior he is. That's what he's saying. And that God who I've cheated on said, I'm ready. I'm here. I'm ready. Well, how in the world do I get that grace? James tells us. He says, that's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows grace or favor to the humble. Write this down. Humility is the only way to get what I really need. There's no shortcut. Well, then how in the world do I walk a path of humility? And that's where James spends the rest of his time, and then we're done. How in the world do I begin to humble myself? How in the world do I begin, stop, do, do I stop in my life trying to get my own way and begin to humble myself to get what I really need? Well, here's what he says next. He says, here's where it starts. Submit. I would circle that word in your Bibles. It's a military term. It's a military term. He says, recognize your right place. Submit yourselves then to God. Look here a second. You mean... He's the drill sergeant? No, no. He's the God who jealously wants a relationship with you. He's the God waiting to pour grace on you. He's the God who loves you, cares about you, knows more than you. Here's the point. Why wouldn't you submit to his leadership in your life? And then he says, resist. That's military, a defense term. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Like a good offense and a good defense are necessary. What's he saying? I want you to write it this way. He's saying, say yes to God by saying no to Satan. And the way you say no to Satan is you say yes to God. That's what he's saying. He's saying submitting to God is resisting the devil, and resisting the devil is submitting to God. He's saying, that's what I want you to do. Say, when it comes to God, whatever he says, the answer is yes. Teenagers, listen to me. So I'll talk to you a second. When it comes to God, the answer is yes. That's what he's saying. Well, what if I don't quite understand how it's going to turn out? Answer is yes. What if I don't know where he's taking me? Answer is yes. Well, what if what I hear over here sounds fun and enjoyable? He's saying, listen, say yes to God, resist the devil. But I don't know everybody else. He's saying, say yes to God, resist Satan. He says, when I don't listen to God, I'm actually listening to Satan. That's what he's saying. When I don't obey God, when I, when I don't surrender to God, when I don't submit to God, I'm actually submitting to Satan. I'm actually obeying Satan. That's what he's saying. So, so how do I humble myself? I recognize he knows more than me, that he's ready to lavish grace on me, that he's jealous for me, that he died for me. I'm going to submit to his leadership. I'm going to say yes when it comes. Uh, man, that's not what I was going to do. I didn't know. Who knew? I'm going to listen. I'm going to obey. I'm going to submit. doesn't stop there. Look what he says next. He says, verse 8, I want you to come near. I want you to come near, and he'll come near to you. What's he saying? I want you to write it this way. I'm going to pursue the God who's pursuing me. I'm going to pursue the God who's pursuing me. He, James is just saying this. He's saying that, that when I come to my senses and I stop running after my own way and humble myself, I find a God who's ready to put his arm around me. It reminds me of when I was a little kid. I grew up in a, in a some of you may not know this, I grew up in a preacher's home in the, in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And... Um, out front of the church where my dad was, was a pastor, there was two big old pine trees, and there was a major highway. 
And so my dad would say, we had church like every night of the week, it felt like, but Sunday nights we had church, and, and he would say to me, he'd say to my brother and I, my brother's three years older than me, so I'd take my cues from my brother. Anybody a, a middle child or a younger son or something? Like, yeah, you understand what I'm talking about. I got in all my trouble because I followed my brother, right? I hope you're watching, Keith. But anyways, here's the deal. My dad would say to me, he'd say, listen, boys, I don't want you causing trouble after church and getting into, you know, all the kind of stuff a dad would say, right? And so after church, I want you to, you know, make sure you this, that, and make sure you don't get in. Well, my brother had some friends, and every Sunday night, what we would do with his friends, they were teenagers, and I was just this fifth-grade chubby little tag-along. We'd go stand between those two pine trees that was in the middle of the winter. Major highway, and we had this activity that we took part in that my dad knew nothing about. We would make snowballs, and we would see how many semi-trucks we could hit on the way by. I don't recommend that, right? If you're a truck driver, you hate me right now, but we got really good at it, right? One night, I'm out there with all my brother's friends. They're all older than me, and I'm out there hoping Dad doesn't find out. We're nuzzled in behind, be, between the, the pine trees, right? And we're just, just firing, man. There's probably about 10 of us out there. I don't know. And man, we, we threw those snowballs because a truck went by and missed the truck, but they hit the car behind it, and something happened that had never happened to us before. All of a sudden, the vehicle that we hit, put the brakes on, pulled to the side of the road. All four doors open. It looked like about 20 different people came out of that car to me. <laughs> but a bunch of teenagers, young adults began to exit that car, heading right for us. I'm chubby little fifth grader. I began to turn this way, turn this way. My brother and his friends already gone, man. <laughs> They're in the shadows. And I began to think to myself, what am I going to do? I'm stuck. I'm out here where I shouldn't be. I can't outrun them where they are. And so I began to think, and I began, just like a cartoon, my legs went just like this. And I ran in the side door of the church, ran up the steps, down the aisle, stood beside my dad as he was shaking hands with people on the way out. And I remember my daddy put his arm around me. And I thought, this is where I need to be. Some of y'all, you've been out between the pine trees living life living life, and it's about ready to cash in on you, and you're really tempted to outrun it. You're really tempted to somehow hide in the shadows of it, and what James is saying, this is all he's saying, there's a God waiting for you. He's like, I'm, like, I'm waiting, like, mm, come, come. See, some of you, that's not the God you grew up understanding, when you begin to understand there's a God inviting you that way, it changes the way you read this book. You won't read it like a textbook. You read it like a love letter. Change the way you pray. You won't begin praying your list. You'll begin having a conversation with a father that loves you. Change the way you see coming to church. You won't say, oh, I've got to go to church. It's like, man, I've got to go to the family reunion. Change the way you serve. Like, oh, man, I've got to fill a void. I've got to volunteer. I want to be a part of what my father's doing. See, he says, come near to me, I'll come near to you. Some of you, though, you're afraid to come near to him. You know why? Here's why. Because your hands are dirty. Because your hands are dirty. And you're like, I've been living between those pine trees for a long time, Dan. And I got lots of dirt on my hands. Which leads James to say this. Okay. Where's your hand? Sinners? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, 
when it comes to the dirt on your hands, he said, cleanse them. That's outside, right? That's the external. There's behaviors that got to change. There's routines, habits that got to change. There's relationships that need restored. There's repayment that needs made. But he said, don't stop there. If you stop there, you'll be a hypocrite with clean hands and they'll keep getting dirty. He said, no, no, go further. He said, purify your hearts. Why? Because ultimately the sin in my life, this, this is so revolutionary. Ultimately the sin in my life is not just me breaking rules. It's breaking relationship with God. And he says, you're double-minded. You're having an affair on me. And he says, I want you to come back. I'm ready to lavish grace. And he said, that the heart of the issue, the heart of the issue is what changes the hands of the issue. That's what he's saying. And then he said, when you come, grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Can I say something? All the young people in the room, I want you to listen, listen close to what I'm saying. We live in a culture that's addicted to levity and laughing And so we've even made sin something to laugh at. And when I understand what sin is, it's not just breaking a rule, but it's breaking relationship. Here's the illustration. If my wife says, do the dishes after you eat, and I leave the dishes in the sink and she catches me, you know what I'm doing? I'm saying, sorry, sweetheart, I'll get it tomorrow. But if I have an affair on my wife, and I say, sorry, sweetheart, what are we doing tomorrow? How do you think my wife might respond? Excuse me? You see, God is saying that as long as I just think that this deal with me and my relationship, oh, sorry, God broke the rules. What do you want to do tomorrow? He's like, no, no, I want you to broken. I want you to come knowing I so love you and I want the depth of your brokenness to match the, the, the depth of my jealous love for you. I love you. Whew. Like, I got to somewhere along the way deal honestly and completely with the sin in my life. If I want to somehow get to the root of the conflict and the complacency that I have with others. Which leads James to say this if I humble myself before the Lord, He's the one who's going to lift me up. I'm going to tell you something, it, it's, it's countercultural. The only appropriate, look here a second, the only appropriate elevation is submission. The only appropriate, healthy way to be elevated in life is to submit yourself to a God who cares and knows and loves you. It's fascinating, isn't it? And when that begins to happen, then it begins to fold over into my relationship with others. And that's why he says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, guys, don't slander each other. Don't speak against a brother and Speak against the law and judge it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What's he saying? When I begin to get this and surrender myself and come near to God and confess my sin, I can quit playing God in other people's lives. And when I quit playing God in their life, guess what? I'm free to serve them. I'm free to serve them. I'd love for you to take a minute with me here as we close. And I'm going to ask you, don't put your stuff away. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads across the room. If you want to close your eyes, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. I just want you to get in a space. Father, we want to enter this this time of, of prayer, and we want to enter it appropriately. And 
We want to enter it asking you to do it. We start it saying, challenge us and change us. So here's my question in this, in this quiet moment. When you look at your life, is it a garden of drama, disruption, confusion, jealousy, coveting, anger? Your relationship's superficial, not thriving. Are you petty? <laughs> Go further. And don't just look at the fruit of your relationships, but look at the root of your relationship with God. Will you at least take two minutes to just be dead level honest in this room? You don't have to tell anybody at this moment. Just be dead level honest. Is your relationship with God ceremonial at best, indifferent, inconsequential, complacent? Maybe it's contrived. And maybe it's complacent and contrived this morning. Maybe if, if you're just dead level honest, it's because you're, maybe you're two-time in God. And maybe this morning it's like I'm glad to be married to God because I get forgiveness of sin in heaven but I kind of want to fool around in the meantime. And maybe this morning, James, the half-brother of Jesus, zeroed in on the problem and the root. You're saying, Dan, well, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good what I see, and that's why verses 5 and 6 are in there. There is a God who is waiting to put his arm around you. He is jealous for you. And he said, quit living between the pine trees. Quit running to the shadows. Quit hiding in the woods. And run to me. Right now. Dirty hands and all. Double-minded. Divided heart and all. And I'll cleanse. And I'll be the one to lift you up. I'll be the one to begin to do in your life what you can't do on your own when you try to get your own way. And when you allow me to do that, you may be shocked how that begins to export into your marriage, your friendships, your work relationships, your neighbors. God, we desperately need you to visit us. We just want to be honest. We don't want a religion that just makes a point. We don't want a spirituality that's just a service we attend. We want a faith that works, a wisdom that's real. And as we look at the relationships in our life, we realize that that's where a wisdom that's real has grown. And so God, we confess that there's many times that we have had a double-minded heart, a divided heart. Forgive us. Forgive us for making flippant what is so serious. And I pray, God, that we would run into your arms a jealous, loving God. And that as we do that, as the song we sang earlier said, that we would drown in the ocean of your grace. Just be smothered in the ocean of your grace. And then we would be people who just export that grace to the people that we run into, live with, work with. Thanks for loving us, Lord. Thank you for 
caring about us. Thank you for visiting us today. We pray this in Jesus' name.